right, well, here we go. Pretty straightforward passage, isn't it? <laughs> Welcome to Mago Day, where we read the most obscure psalms in the Psalter and now uh, have a sermon again on singleness. Uh, if you're new with us, uh, we're going through 1 Corinthians, an amazing book. Paul is addressing various topics and concerns that this young church has been writing to him about. And uh, he, he'll move on to another topic in chapter 8, uh, but we're here uh, as Paul is talking again about singleness and marriage. And so let's pray together as we dive in. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, for the instruction that it brings our lives, that you just didn't wind up the universe and let it run on its own but you're a father who's intimately uh, involved in our lives, and you've given us your word to instruct us on, on matters of life and godliness. And we thank you that your word is truly a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And I pray that the light of your word today uh, would instruct us that we may be fully pleasing in your sight. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, I was thinking about it earlier this week. I was like, man, this week is Valentine's Day, and I'm talking about singleness uh, and marriage. I didn't pick it at all because of Valentine's Day. I don't really even like Valentine's Day, but I used to call, to, call it Single Awareness Day before I was married uh, for all of those years. And, you know, there's no shortage of ideas, opinions, articles, movies, uh, blogs, books, songs on the subject of relationships, romance, Singleness, marriage. The line, I'm single and ready to mingle, is a very popular line today. I read in the news this morning that Taylor Swift landed safely in the United States ahead of Travis Kelsey's Super Bowl showing. So America can rest easy. Taylor Swift has arrived, and she'll be there to cheer on her boyfriend. In 2008, Beyonce released the single, uh, single Ladies, put a ring on it, and it won Song of the Year. It was the song about uh, men being unwilling or too afraid to commit to a relationship. And if you're not familiar with the song, it goes, all the single ladies, 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 all the single ladies. <laughs> now put your hands up. Now put your hands up. It was Beyonce's philosophy of singleness. Switching genres to Luke Combs, country singer, has a song, When It Rains, It Pours, is about how he got on a streak of luck after uh, he broke up or his girlfriend broke up with him. And that streak of luck contained a whole lot of things. He says, for example, I was caller number five on a radio station, won a four-day, three-night beach vacation, deep-sea senorita fishing down in Panama, and I ain't got to see my ex-future mother-in-law anymore. <laughs> it's my favorite line. My, I don't have to see my ex-future mother-in-law anymore. Better off single, according to Luke Combs. Well, now we're reading Paul on singleness. So a lot of philosophies out there on singleness, a lot of philosophies out there on dating, on marriage, and now we get to read about an inspired apostle who's giving us uh, divine instruction. And he's continuing what he said earlier in the chapter, that, that, that marriage is good, it's a gift from God, but it's not necessary to live a life pleasing to the Lord. That singleness is also good. And so Paul doesn't give us an inflexible rule. He, he urges us to, to, to be wise and he, gives, uh, he addresses various individuals who are in various situations, really answering one question in our passage today, to marry or not to marry. He talks to those who are not married in verse 25, and then in verses 28 to 35, those seeking to marry, 
And then in 39 and 40, about widows, whether or not they should marry again. Now, if you just start reading the Bible, you see immediately that it was not good for man to be alone, and God designed uh, that man and woman be uh, united together in, in marriage. And you might assume that because it was, it, that was a good thing, that the Bible would continue to be negative about singleness. But that's not how it works. That we need to hold a biblical view of marriage, but we also need to hold a biblical view of singleness. And some in the church, even without meaning to, can, can sometimes give the impression that singleness is somehow second best. Maybe not as crassly as the name of a young adults group at a church in England that was called Pears and Spares. <laughs> That's terrible, isn't it? That was a real name. Uh, that's England. Uh, but but they still, they still get, they, we still may give that impression that it's somehow second best. But Paul here is saying something different. He's writing as a single man himself. That singleness is not only good, but it actually has many advantages. It brings a lot of opportunities. And Tim Keller in his book on marriage talks about how this was a revolutionary vision of singleness in ancient cultures that place this absolute value on family and bearing children. And he goes on to say that single adults cannot be seen as somehow less fully formed or realized human beings because Jesus Christ, a single man, was a perfect man. And he goes on then to talk about how uh, the, the reason this, this could be the case, that it could be viewed so positively, is that single adult Christians were bearing testimony that God, not family, was their hope that God would guarantee their future first by giving them their truest family, the church, so that they never lacked for brothers or sisters, fathers or mothers in Christ. And it's beautiful to see the family of God operate like that. As, as you see younger Christians caring for the elderly or married uh, uh, couples and a family welcome in a single or a single helping a family, like the body of Christ is beautiful when it is flourishing like that. And Jesus said on one occasion when uh, his family members were looking for him, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So we're part of an amazing family in the church. Now, a couple other caveats before we look at the text. When, when we talk about singleness today, I think you're aware that, that we're talking about singleness radically different from the way the secular culture talks about singleness. Like the culture may say, yes, yeah, singleness is better because you can play the field. You can sow your wild oats. You don't have any marital commitments. But for a Christian, when we say singleness, we're not just talking about being unmarried. We're also talking about being committed to sexual abstinence. And that latter part is not a philosophy that's adopted at all in, in modern society. Some people hear that idea and say, that's boring, or that's even dangerous, or that sounds like Downton Abbey, or, or something archaic. What are you guys talking about? And that's why we need the Bible. Because the Bible gives us a vision of the kingdom of God and the kingdom to come. The Bible gives us a vision of a good and wise God. That his designs are not only wise, but they're also good. Now, finally, it's important for us to remember not, not all singles are the same. There's a difference in being single at 18, a single at 30, single at 40, single at 70. There's a difference if you've never been married or if you've been divorced or are widowed or are a single parent. Not everyone feels the same way about their situation. I have met some singles in this church who seem perfectly content to be single, and some are really frustrated in their singleness. The same, by the way, is said of marriages. Some are wonderful and content, and some are, let's say, challenging. Now, 
Paul addresses the Corinthians, and he's aware of these things. And again, his big idea is that marriage is good, but not necessary. Singleness is good, and it has some advantages. If we were to look at the text just through the lens of advantages, I would point out three of them. And uh, this is an outline that could be used. Verses 25 to 28, he says that singles could have less distress. Secondly, in verses 29 to 31, he says that singles may have fewer distractions. And then thirdly, verses 32 to 40, singleness could enjoy greater devotion to the Lord. So those are the kind of blessings, opportunities that we'll see as we move through the passage. But uh, the other way I want us to think about it is how Paul gives some wise words about those who are considering marriage. And we'll look at it in, in three parts. He says, first of all, to be wise. Secondly, be heavenly minded. And thirdly, be devoted to the Lord. That's what he says. Now, if you're not a single, there is still a reason to lean in and pay attention to what Paul says because we are a church with a lot of singles and we want to love our brothers and sisters well. We're in an area that has a lot of singles. But it's also important to remember, this is not a very pleasant thought, that most married people will be single again. Rarely does the couple die at the same time. And so you might return to this passage down the road uh, and, and realize that, yeah, that's relevant. But what Paul says here about basic discipleship goes for all of us. He says some really important things. So let's look at it together. First of all, Paul says to those who are trying to answer the question, to marry or not to marry, to be wise. He doesn't give an inflexible rule, but he, he encourages uh, uh, singles to consider the situation. He says, I have no command from the Lord, meaning that Jesus didn't teach specifically on this exact topic the same way Paul is, but he does come to us as an inspired apostle, so his words are trustworthy. And he gives freedom to this question about marriage. He says, I think in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. The present distress. Whatever that is, he says, "You, you could get married now, or you could wait till that crisis is over. It's, a, it's an obvious problem because of the way he writes. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek to have a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. That's something he says later in the passage. You have not sinned if you want to get married. In chapter 9, verse 5, Paul speaks about himself, and he says, do I not have the right to take a believing wife? Well, yeah, you do. Um, and then he says, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I will spare you of that. So in this life of marriage, you will have trouble. So it's not sinful, but it may not be the best time. And so we got to deal with the question, what is this present distress? It could refer to persecution that was going on at the time of writing. It could include famine. Historians also tell us of uh, an impending famine or a famine that was, was happening at the time. Others think this present distress is just a more general statement about the fact that the end is coming soon. Um, But those are all not even really mutually exclusive. A famine and persecution are signs of the end of the age. If it was something like a famine, then you could see why Paul would say be wise, because it would be hard to put food on the table. It would seem to be easier to, to live if you were a single person in that particular case. And all of these situations would make one long for the return of Christ. And so he gives general counsel here, those who are married should stay married, those who are free should stay free in light of the present distress. However, if you can't practice self-control, get married. You haven't sinned. Just remember when you get married, you will have many worldly troubles. (laughs) It doesn't mean you won't have any troubles as a single person, 
But you will have some added troubles as a married person. You have to put up with each other. Your own unique personalities and all your little quirks, all your habits. Sam Albury notes other challenges like you will have some unmet expectations. How many couples I've heard say something like, this isn't what I signed up for. Or raising kids, that's a big one. It's a great joy and a great blessing, but it can also be, it can come with all sorts of troubles and heartache and heartbreak. It comes with a lot of joy, but it can bring a lot of trouble. Albury in his book, Seven Myths of Singleness, goes on to say, the fact is, both singleness and marriage have their own particular ups and downs. And this is an important line. The temptation for many who are single is to compare the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage. And the temptation for some married people is to compare the downs of marriage to the ups of singleness, which is equally dangerous. The grass will often seem greener on the other side. Whichever gift we have, marriage or singleness, and he's writing as a single minister, the other can easily seem far more attractive. Paul's point is to show singles that there are some some downs unique to marriage, some worldly troubles that we are spared by virtue of our singleness. Our common assumption, marriage is better or easier, is simply not true. Seeing what I have seen in the last decade or so, I have to say I would choose the lows of singleness over the lows of marriage any day of the week. Now, with all that, what is Paul saying? He's saying be wise on this question, to marry or not to marry. Is now the best time? For us, we're not dealing with a famine, but maybe you're asking the question, is college the best time? Is being in debt the best time? Do you have an addiction? Are you a new Christian? I remember when I became a Christian, all my categories changed. And I I was like, man, there was a whole lot of growth that I needed to be ready. Or can you trust God in your waiting? There's 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 a question on time that Paul is raising here. And Paul is bringing up the reality that if you get married, everything changes in your life. Think about when I was a single guy, how my time immediately changed compared to now. Some of you guys used to have a hobby like me. You, or you could say, I used to be a great bass fisherman, and now I'm great at vacuuming. Um, you, could, you should see how I empty the dishwasher. It's, it's brilliant. Your money changes, how you spend it. Your home changes. Your Rocky poster got taken down, and you got a dresser now. And you got, you, when I was in college, I could move in two hours. Like it, it didn't take long to move house at all. Your clothes change. You get all domesticated. You get buttons on your shirts and things like that, and sport coats. Everything changes. And so he's telling singles, be wise. I would add to this, this is why the Lord has given us the body of Christ, good leaders. He's given us resources that, that we may not just act out of the flesh, but may seek spiritual wisdom. Secondly, he says to singles, and he really says this to everybody because this is really the, uh, a strong portion of this passage, that we are to live as heavenly-minded people. The priority is to seek things are, that are above, not things of the earth. And he goes on to say that the time is short. This is what I mean, brothers, that the appointed time has grown very short. Jesus has come, he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended to the Father, he is seated at the Father's right hand, and he is coming again soon. So live in light of that reality. Later in chapter 10, verse 11, he says that the culmination of the ages has come in Jesus Christ. So prioritize eternal realities over transient realities. 
This again is not just a word for singles, but it's a word for every Christian. Don't let your ambitions be too earthbound. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, we must interpret Paul rightly here. Because <laughs> if you don't like your wife, you're like, this is my favorite verse right there. Uh, from now on, I'm going to live as though I had no wife. No, no. Um, Paul's not saying that you should neglect your marriage. Uh, we know in Ephesians 5, he says anything but that. He actually says that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What he's simply saying is that marriage is temporary. And believers who are married should not live as if their ultimate joy is in marriage. Our ultimate joy is in Christ. And so he, he is trying to, to, again, set their gaze on heavenly realities. The same is true in verse 30. Those who mourn as those who were, that they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Again, we can't be overly wooden with, with Paul here. We know that elsewhere in Scripture, we're taught to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who are mourned. That's, that's basic Christian living. But the point is eschatological. The point is the future. And this is actually a very encouraging part of this passage. He is saying that the joys of this life and the sorrows of this life will not last forever. Think about that for a moment. Your sorrow has an expiration date. It's not eternal. You should not think your sorrow is eternal. Now, if I could just be honest, there is not a day, I hope I'm honest all the time, but if I, I'm being transparent, there is not a day that I don't feel deep sorrow. Deep sorrow. I go to the gym primarily for emotional health, to, to fight discouragement from feeling overwhelmed, but there is a day coming well, I will never feel another ounce of sorrow. Not an ounce. And neither will you, Christian. You will never feel sorrow again. And I won't have to work out anymore either. Be buff with a glorified body and flowing locks of hair, shining in the sun of God's glory. Uh, I probably will work out because I like it. Uh, Spurgeon says, the day will come, dear friend, when your cheeks, all befouled with weeping, shall be washed and made fair to look upon. Your eyes may be weary and with waiting and watching, red with weeping, but that weeping shall endure only for a night. Joy cometh in the morning, as surely as the morning cometh after night. Bear your sorrows bravely, for they are appointed of your heavenly Father in supreme wisdom. Bear them joyfully, for they will bring forth to you the peaceable fruits of righteousness. This sorrow has an expiration date, but also the joy that we have now is not the full and everlasting joy that we will have in the future. So don't look to things to give you what only Jesus can give you. Only Jesus can give you full and everlasting joy. Only Jesus will wipe away the sorrow from our face forever. So he's saying this, this life is short. So let's live as if it is short. Let's not obsess over things, including marriage, which is a temporary institution. Let's not obsess with, next category, with goods. Those who buy as though they had no goods. We cannot keep these possessions. This is why we can hold possessions lightly, because they do not last forever. And those who deal with the world as, as though they had no dealings with it, for the world, this present world is passing away. 
The Christian is to be heavenly minded. We should not be so attached to day-to-day activities that we fail to live in light of the hope that is ours. Brian Key last week, he, he set this pulpit on fire preaching, didn't he? And, and he talked about this in 2 Corinthians when he says, we look to the things that are not seen, but the things that are unseen. Not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So set your attention on what is most significant. And this is why the early church could have such a radical view of singleness. It was the gospel and the hope of the future that, that de-idolized marriage. It put marriage in its proper perspective. So as we think about all of these things, whether it's a good thing like marriage, or mourning or rejoicing, or buying and using possessions, they're not ultimate in their importance. They're part of this world. Be heavenly minded. Don't obsess over things of this world. Let's live like the end could come at any moment. And one day all of these things will be gone, and we will see our Christ. This world is not our home. Several years ago, the LSU Tigers won the College World Series, and one of the players decided after the World Series to go to home plate and get a a bottle full of dirt from home. And the next season, he took it with him to every game. And whenever the games got challenging and difficult, he would pull out that bottle of dirt, and he would open it up and say, guys, get a whiff of Rosenblatt Stadium. That's where we're going. That's where we're going. And you know how you deal with sorrow and you deal with the trials of this life is every day you open up the Bible and you get a whiff of where you're going. You remind yourself of where you're headed. And you live like this world is really not our home. This book tells us where our home is. And that's how we, what we must preach to our souls day by day by day by day. So he tells us to be heavenly minded. Thirdly, he tells us to be devoted to the Lord. He goes on to talk about how married men and women have more obligations and the single person may have less anxiety. And he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. (laughs) Um, And the unmarried and betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So what Paul wants for uh, the church in Corinth is this undivided devotion to the Lord. I think what he's saying here really relates to his own ministry, his own experience, that because Paul was single, he was free to take more risks. He could get beat up all over the Mediterranean world. (laughs) He's looking like Glass Joe from Mike Tyson's Punch-Out!, just, just boom, boom, just everywhere he went, he could, he could go on a whim somewhere. And it's, it's more challenging sometimes as uh, a family. I mean, just getting your little kids to church sometimes feels like an Olympic event, uh, right? Just, just to get here. Now, he's not saying that life is just easier and that marriage is harder. There are, there are challenges as a single person. You may have, be tempted with loneliness or sexual temptation You may lose closeness to a friend when that friend gets married. You could be tempted to be jealous of those who get married. The contrast, I don't think, is with ease versus hard, but rather simplicity versus complexity. That marriage brings a certain complexity to life. 
And there is a simplicity to singleness. It's not without challenges, but it, but it doesn't bring all, all of the added layers that we often experience as, as married people. And so he says you could have less anxieties, and that means you could have greater devotion to the Lord. Your interests won't be as divided. And there's no surprise then that some of the greatest missionaries in Christian history were single. Helen Rosevere, for example, or the saint of the Southern Baptist Convention, Lottie Moon, single. Singles could have more time, they could be more mobile, they could have a more singular focus. And so Paul gets toward the end of his writing here in verses 36 to 38 and recaps a bit of what he said previously already that uh, he says in in most cases uh, uh, that, well, he says it's not a sin to get married, verse uh, 36. And then uh, he says in verse 38 that those who refrain from marriage uh, may do even better. So again, he's leaving this question up to, to wisdom. There's, there's a freedom here. There's a flexibility. He is given a positive view of singleness, saying that it does have many advantages. And then he deals with the widow and says that the, the widow is free to marry if her husband dies, but only in the Lord, which is how we're to marry at any situation. Only in the Lord, meaning we're marrying a Christian. Yet in my judgment, he says, she is happier if she remains as she is. And then Paul says, I too think I have the Spirit of God. Maybe with a touch of friendly sarcasm to the Corinthians who boasted of their spirituality. He's basically saying, don't dismiss my teaching. It's divinely, uh, uh, divinely uh, given. So we come to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, what I'd like to do briefly is just highlight three kind of overarching reflections from this chapter. I'll give them briefly to you. Number one, be content to stay where God has called you. We belong primarily to Jesus Christ. That's our fundamental identity. We've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Our present identity is not our past iniquity. Our present identity is we belong to Christ. There can be a contentment there because our primary identity is not in our marital status or our social status, but in our spiritual status. We're often, we, we often think that a change in circumstance will make life better. And Paul's clear in this passage, there may be times that you can change your circumstance, and you are free to do that, but let's not be motivated by idolatry. Let's not believe that the grass is always greener on the other side. Jesus is an all-satisfying Savior, and so let's be content in Him. As a single person, find your contentment in Christ. As a married person, find your contentment in Christ. If you're not a Christian, you are made for a relationship with Christ. He is the lover of our souls. And no relationship, as good as it might be, can give us what Jesus has come to give us. Contentment. Secondly, value the gift of singleness. If you're married, do not make singles feel inferior or as if something's wrong with them. The greatest person who ever lived was single, Jesus Christ. The greatest naturally born person was single, John the Baptist. The greatest missionary and theologian who ever existed was single, the Apostle Paul. And there have been millions of singles throughout the history of the church that have built up the church and advanced the Great Commission. Singles, Paul wants you to hear that you're not missing out necessarily on the good life. You actually have a lot of unique opportunities in singleness, so don't waste them. There may be situations where marriage is a possibility, and this pastor says that you should be wise in making that decision. 
So we value the gift of singleness. And thirdly, we value the gift of marriage. Marriage is also the gracious gift of God. Marriage is God's idea. I like being married. When I was in seminary, my whole goal was to have my calendar filled up with speaking engagements. And I got the whole calendar filled up. And after about a year of that, I was coming home to a Rocky poster, no furniture, a spork. And I was like, what in the heck am I doing? You know, like, this is my ambition. Um, and I got serious about marriage. And I, this is a testimony of God's grace. I'm at a camp preaching. Uh, and Kimberly was sitting in the front row. She was not a camper. She, she's a little bit older than me, actually. And <laughs> clarify that. Uh, and I remember this like it was yesterday. And I was preaching on Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. She's in the front row with a little baby blue zip-up hoodie. And as I'm preaching, I said to myself, I'm going to marry that girl. And she went back and talked to her prayer partner that night and said, she sensed that the Lord was saying to her, she was going to marry a pastor. Now, my word was a lot clearer than, than her words. My, my, word, my word came with specificity, right? At least she was in the right category, right? She always thought she'd marry someone in the military. And uh, that week, I asked her to go to Starbucks. And she said, yes, we got in my Toyota Celica. Shane and Shane in the tape deck. And um, we, we, long story short, we've been married 20 years, and I love everything about marriage. But it will not satisfy my deepest longing, even the best of marriages. It is a temporary institution, but Jesus will satisfy. He will satisfy forever. He is the lover of our souls. If you have Jesus, you have enough. And one day we're going to see our Christ. And there will be no more sorrow to feel in this life. No more funerals for you to attend. No more, no more prayer gatherings needed to pray for sick people and dying people. Because the marriage of the supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb will come. And that's the great hope we have today. It's the great joy we have today. Jesus is alive. He's real. He loves us. And if you're not a Christian, why wouldn't you become a Christian? God loves to save all kinds of people. This is a room filled with people with all different stories. But Jesus, by his grace, has made us alive. And we'd love to talk to you about becoming a Christian, having this hope that we have. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the divine wisdom contained in it. And we pray in all of the relationships that we deal with and with all the stuff of life, as this passage has talked about, possessions and these sorts of things, that we would, we would not get too attached to earthly things. We want to fulfill our responsibilities. We want to be good stewards of everything you've given us. But we pray that we could be heavenly-minded people looking for the day in which we will see our Christ again. Strengthen all who are weary today with the good news of the gospel. Even now, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, you continue to minister to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.